So, so the border is a lot of variety and people misunderstand it who don't know it. And so it's very susceptible to uh, being stereotypes or being vilified or being, um, you know, being told this is what it is when you don't actually experience it. And so for me as a, pu as a public figure is to change those stereotypes, to give a more complex view of the border. Welcome to the Lifelines podcast brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. I'm Marina Aris. And I'm Diane Fenner. And we're your hosts. This is the podcast for book creators, book lovers, and literary ambassadors. Join us each week as we explore the writing life, the art, and the business of creating great books. Welcome to another episode of Lifelines, the Books podcast. Today, we are here with Sergio Troncoso. Sergio Troncoso's life story is the stuff of dreams. During his childhood, he lived in a poor neighborhood of Texas without electricity or indoor plumbing and attended rural public schools. Yet from these humble beginnings, he made his way into Harvard College, where he graduated magna cum laude, then went on to Yale University, where he earned two graduate degrees and followed that by winning a Fulbright scholarship to study economics, politics, and literature. He is not only an author, but also a writing teacher at the Yale Writers Workshop in Connecticut and the Hudson Valley Writers Center in New York. He is the vice president of the Texas Institute of Letters and a judge of the Penn Faulkner Awards. We are delighted to bring you Sergio Trangoso. Thank you for being with us today. Thank it's, you for inviting me. And I started to speak over you. I'm sorry. It's such a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm especially taken with your work because of the timeliness of it um, and also because when you talk about a person who is a member of an outgroup or a person who is straddling two cultures, you're not only talking about that, but there's something universal about it for everyone because we all come up against struggling to be either uh, in a group or off on our own. Um, I was wondering if you could just sort of start out by framing the conversation around your themes and your works. Well, I often uh, write about the Mexican border because that's where I grew up in Texas. And um, Isleta, which was the, uh, a, um, a neighborhood, a rural neighborhood on the outskirts of El Paso, uh, was um, a colonia which means you didn't have electricity, didn't have running water, and my parents moved here from Juarez. So that, that was sort of the milieu that I grew up in. Um, I call it um, sort of Tom Sawyer-ish life, but Mexican style. Um, <laughs> Mexican style. You know, I would, I would go in the back of the canal behind my house. My mother still lives in the same adobe house we built. Um, and and get uh, snakes and and frogs and, and and just cotton fields were behind my house and a few horse farms as well, and eventually all of that became um, developed and became sort of a working class neighborhood, which is what it is now. But that's 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 what I write about. I write about uh, often how I grew up there and my influences and in storytelling. My grandmother on my mother's side. And, um, and then my grandfather on my father's side, who was a very well-known journalist in Juarez. Um, and then 
what what the other major theme that I think I write about is going from that beginning to a place like Harvard and Yale and and that huge jump um, which took me a long time to adjust to um, and I of course had no idea what even the Ivy League was uh, had never been to Massachusetts had never been to Harvard of course and there was no internet back then so I couldn't even look at pictures um, so I had I really had no clue and I, when I arrived at Harvard I had bell-bottom jeans and uh, Led Zeppelin t-shirts and I didn't know Boston got cold, so I had to buy a used coat at Teaser's, which is in, in Central Square, a used clothing shop. And so I was, you know, beyond the fish out of water, I just felt like I was on Mars. Right, and Diane said it was, it's a timely topic, but immigration is timely. Feeling like you don't belong and you're trying to fit in is timely. But when did you actually start to write these stories? Well, I, I started writing them on the late side, already into my graduate school at Yale. I was involved in, in writing as a kid in high school. For example, I was editor of my high school newspaper. But I went to, to Harvard really and found out I knew nothing about my background. I knew nothing about Mexico. I knew nothing about where my parents were, were from Chihuahua. And, and so instead of writing, I really started educating myself, uh, find, taking Mexican history courses, taking Latin American courses, because Texas schools do not value, do not teach Mexican culture in Texas school books. Uh, and that's changing now, but, but yes, it, it, and it's awful. So for me, that, that the first four or five years were really educating myself about who am I? Where am I from? And John Womack, the great Mexican historian at Harvard, became my, my uh, he was a Marxist historian who was chairman of the history department and wrote probably the best book in, in English in Latin America, still considered the best book now, it's Zapata and the Mexican Revolution. Uh, it's considered a classic in Mexico. Um, and he became my mentor. So it, it, first, once I educated myself about who I was, where I was from, and, and my history, then I started getting into writing in graduate school. So the stories started coming out in, at Yale once I was in graduate school. So you, what year were you at Harvard? 19, uh, I, I graduated in 1983. 83. And um, I was just struck by the fact that you were not only... Um, an outsider in the Harvard culture, but you were actually an out... It's like you didn't belong to either of the two worlds that you inhabited, right? You really weren't Harvard enough at Harvard, but you really weren't uh, aware of your own heritage either. No, no, and, 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 and a lot of that was growing up in high school in Texas. You know, it, I mean, El Paso itself is, is only marginally part of Texas. It is not Houston, it's not Dallas, it's not Austin. It's been majority Mexican and Mexican-American for the last 100 years at least. So it's really more of a part of New Mexico than it is a part of Texas. And, um, and so, so I think in, in, in that sense, it was also being an outcast even within Texas. Well, here's a here's a question for you. Um, so, so there are two ways I think to really delve into where we come from and our identity. So, how would you say your family, living amongst other families like them in an American world, how did they, in your view, 
give you some of your cultural history? Because I, I, I assume you had the cultural background, but maybe not the historical context. Is that right? Right, that's correct. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't know the history. Right. But my, my parents were typical, maybe not typical, but um, very hard-nosed Mexican immigrant parents, which means you worked. You worked until you dropped, and then you got up the next day and you did it again. And I, I am not joking. I, uh, we would have to go to school. After school, we did construction work just about every week. Saturdays and Sundays, we did construction work with my father. Uh, so I, I knew, learned electrical work. I learned uh, drywall. Um, and and he this was after his 40-hour-a-week job that my father had. Mm-hmm. So, and my mother, of course, would take us to the canal behind our house to clean it. We didn't own the canal. The city owned the canal. <laughs> but she said it's good for the neighborhood. And so she would give us wheelbarrows and, and ba- you know, hose. and and unbelievable. Yeah, that's no, absolutely. Cultural, see, but that's a cultural view on living that was... Was right. ingrained in you. Absolutely. Right. It was a hard work and and there's as my mother would say, there's no tired in my house. Yeah, like give me a book, please. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> give me a book. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It was you know, and I called my father in an essay I just wrote, or Mexican Stalin. Mm-hmm. Uh, he took us from a sort of an agrarian pre-industrial society to sort of somewhat lower middle class society. Um, because of all the hard work, he said, "You don't have anything. The only thing you have is is your is your your labor." And so the three boys, we were stacked up in a tiny little room, like obreros, like workers, and we would work every. You know, we would come home Saturdays and Sundays, just full of scratches and 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 uh, escombro. We would be uh, carting junk to the junkyard from his building that he would demolish. Uh, and and we we once I, I once told my brothers to strike because my father would not pay us, and so after a, after my father sort of semi kicked me out of the house and my mother got me back in, he agreed to pay us twenty five cents an hour. <laughs> you know, so it was education will do for you. Right. So 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 for me it was it, you know that that those are the values my parents taught me in El Paso and Isleta. You know we had nothing and the way to get anything was to do it yourself. There's two ways you can go with this, and I'm curious where you stood with it. On the one extreme, you can be extremely proud of you know Chicano heritage, and you can hold your head up and you can you know go about being a symbol for your cultural identity. And then on the other extreme, you can say, I don't want to be pigeonholed as the Chicano writer and everybody's, oh, we need one Latino for this collection and now I'm the symbol of this one thing and like I'm not even treated as a person, a fully faceted person and how am I helping represent my So, you know, there's the resistance to being pigeonholed and then there's the need to uh, represent and I'm wondering how you feel about that. Do you do you sort of bounce between the two, or did you take a stand? Well, you know, it. it, it I think that's a great question, Diane, because when I wrote my first book, The Last Tortilla, it was more typical Chicano literature, and but it, even with a spin, because I liked philosophy a lot. In fact, I, I, I love. Going to ju- ask you about philosophy. <laughs> I, yes. I love German philosophy, yeah. so a lot of my stories in that book were philosophy and literature. You know, I, I learned German. I spent time in Vienna after Yale because I wanted to read Nietzsche and Heidegger in, 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 Span- in, in, in German. 
But the first, uh, some of the first stories I wrote, the, the Abuelita, for example, was about this Mexican-American graduate student at Yale. I calling, love that story. I love that story. Calling his Mexican grandmother. To so simple. Yeah, to discuss Heidegger. And so full of emotion, you know. Is it just this one phone conversation between this kid, and you can hear how lonely he is in school, and then the abuelita, and she's like, go on, get some fresh air. And in, right. in just this one transaction, a phone conversation, there was so much. I love that story. Yeah. And so even in those stories that were more Chicano literature, I was always doing that spin of including philosophy in serious philosophical questions because that's the stuff I love. So on the one hand, I was trying to represent, as you said, Diane, but also break out of any Chicano lit box. And then my the novel that came after that first uh, story collecting, The Nature of Truth, was really breaking out. Actually, I did it on purpose because everyone, the last tortilla had been so successful right. that people said, do it again. They, they want to put you in a box. Right. They want to put you in right. the Chicano lit box. Yeah. And I said, no, I'm not going to do it again. I'm going to write a philosophical novel set at Yale about a half German, half Mexican guy who's exploring, you know, deep moral questions while he's dealing with uh, discovering bad things that Boss did many years ago. And so, so, so for me, it was you know, it's always been being on this border, not just literally a border of, of, of being Mexican or being American or Spanish or English, but also of pushing the borders, what Chicano lit should be, what American lit should be. Right, you know. right. Which would be, in, in fact, it should be diverse because that's the world we're living in, right? Yeah. So you want to talk about borders for a minute. I want to steer clear of doing anything too um, um, granular when it comes to talking about political issues because uh, things are changing so rapidly. But I do think it's important to talk about how you deal with the current controversies at the border, not so much so that you can um, make a statement, but in a larger sense, you have, uh, I think, like all of us, to answer the question, how much activism or how much do I... How much do I live out my morality in public and how far do I go in being um, vocal and active? Um, you have that question writ large because you're a public figure. You know, um, I just wondered if you could talk a little about your feelings about the border issues and do it in terms of how you decided to handle it. Yeah, well, I think the main border issue for me that had been around for decades is how how much the border is misunderstood, how much uh, stereotypes become reality for p people who don't, have not lived on the border, don't go to El Paso or McAllen or, or Tijuana or San Diego and have spent years and, and know people on both sides that in Iowa or in South Dakota or even in New York City, it gets distorted what the border is. You know, if you if you know families, if you know my neighborhood, for example, in Isleta, you will see that there's no Mexican immigrant uh, stereotype. You know, my, my parents were, I would say, much more Puritan. In fact, they have much more in common with the Puritans of, uh, you know, Jamestown of we do it ourselves. We qualify for food stamps. We will not take them because we will do it ourselves. And then right next door... 
you might have a Mexican family, and they're all Mexicanos, by the way. I don't mean Hispanic. I don't mean Mexican-American. I mean Mexicanos, people who have just crossed last month. Mm -hmm. And they, will, they might be on drugs. They might, you know, they might be on welfare. And so the family culture varies family by family. It is, and to hit it with a broad brushstroke and say all Mexican immigrants are this way right. or all Mexican families are that way or they're not, um, they don't belong in this culture, I think that's a mistake. And so you have to really go to uh, the border and try to appreciate the variety and quality of, of the different immigrants coming across. And I think my family, um, you know, my brothers who grew up with me, one of them is a superintendent at a, uh, a local school district. The other one just won teacher of the year at his high school as English teacher. And they are as hard workers as anybody um, that I know. And this is what we were taught. So, so I think for me, it's, as a public figure, it would be to, to undermine these stereotypes of what Mexican immigrants are or what's going on on the border. El Paso, for example, way before any wall was ever constructed, was super safe. It typically was the lowest crime rate, the lowest murder rate, the lowest assault rate of any city over half a million people for the last probably five to ten years. And and so that's been true before any of this happened, before the you know the the uh, the separation of families at the border, before the the Trump wall, and um, that has not changed. Uh, Juarez, on the other hand, right across the border, has been violent. It's gone through periods of being very violent, periods of being you know relatively speaking safer. And I knew Juarez as a very safe city where I would go to and, and go drinking as an 18-year-old. And so did a lot of Fort Bliss soldiers, for example, who, who knew it. So, so the border is a lot of variety and people misunderstand it who don't know it. And so it's very susceptible to uh, being stereotypes or being vilified or being, um, you know, being told this is what it is when you don't actually experience it. And so for me as a, pu as a public figure is to change those stereotypes, to give a more complex view of the border um, and to counteract you know, the, the, the ridiculous cartoonish characterizations that you all even read in the New York Times, which you would say you know, is, 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 it should be more sympathetic to a more complex view. Um, so that, that's what I try to do myself. Uh, try to teach people what the border really is and the variety of what it is. Well, Juarez, uh, at least in the, um, the story I read, the first one, uh, you describe it, Angie Luna's story, you describe it at night, mm -hmm. as, or at three in the morning, I think, in particular, and you describe it as very quiet. Is that... A, fic a very fictional? <laughs> no, no, that's not fictional really at all. In fact, I would say before in the eight, in the 70s and 80s, when I was growing up, that was the Juarez I knew. The Juarez I knew was great for teenagers, from, from American teenagers going to Juarez, because in Juarez you would never get carded. They would, they would give you drinks. And soldiers from Fort Bliss, which mm -hmm. is one of the major military installations in in, in, in the United States, and in, in the biggest one in El Paso, soldiers would go out and go drinking in Juarez. And, you know, going back and forth, um, either living in Juarez and working in El Paso, or living in El Paso and even working in Juarez was not a big deal. And so, the, you know, w w the cartel wars changed that. 
the drug trafficking that came up to you know to the to the border in a much more violent iteration changed that that was not a Juarez in fact it was a Juarez that I hoped it could return to that um, it was very safe you know occasionally you might get stopped by a Mexican cop and you had to give a mordida you know a bribe but it was 20 bucks or 10 bucks but I I, I took uh, during Harvard uh, Harvard gave me for example a, um, a summer research scholarship and I took a bus from Juarez all the way to Mexico City over 24 hours with chickens being brought into the bus and all of this and nothing happened to me and I was this 20 year old kid that had never been to Mexico really like that. Um, nothing happened, it was safe and I got a lot of help along the way. And, and that's what it used to be that way. It, well, that, that's not fiction. You know, and, and people don't understand that very recently it was like that. It's only the recent, the violence that, that has gotten in the news and people assume that's the way it is everywhere. Can it return to what it was? I don't know. Well, I mean, I have, a, I don't know if it's an abstract question, but I do have a, a, a curiosity about the border, quote unquote border, meaning, I mean, my own mother crossed the border twice, apparently. That's what I've heard. Mm-hmm. So... What is the border? Is there, like, like I, I try to envision it. I've never been there. I've never mm-hmm. been to that side of, of the States. I've pretty much always on the East Coast. But what is the border? Is there, like, a, what is there? Is there, is it just fields? Is it, when people cross and they're not being uh, watched, what are, what are they actually crossing? Well, there are also the different parts of the border. Okay. You know, there's parts like in El Paso that are very urban, you know, or, or suburban. You know, and so you have Juarez on the other side and El Paso on the other side. And it's just two cities really divided by a small little canal. Mm. It's not, it's a Rio Grande, but it's not so grande. You know, it's actually small. And then you go in the outskirts toward either if you go east toward Van Horn or you go, you know, west toward Las Cruces and New Mexico, the border becomes more desolate. It's really just desert. Uh-huh. It's really, it's really a border but there's nothing there. And if you go to places like in Arizona, there's large stretches of the border that are just empty desert and a lot of my, you know, migrants uh, who are crossing to either work or, 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 or join their families, they typically choose these other sort of more desolate places to cross, which are more dangerous. And that's why, right. that's why they die, that's why they you know, die of thirst or, or you know, and, and coyotes, you know, basically Mexican smugglers will take them to these less populated areas um, to cross them over and then, you know, sometimes abandon them um, in the middle of the desert. So, so the border is, you know, so it goes from, it goes from being cities on the border like McAllen or El Paso or Tijuana to large stretches of desert, large stretches of nothing. You know, being and then everything in between. Sometimes there are ranches there. Sometimes there are cotton fields, um, and in many places there's there's no a physical barrier other than maybe some mountains or desert. Right, and because I, I remember looking this up once, and I found some something about patrol now. This border patrol and these men with with guns, and I'm thinking, are they? They'd have to, I mean, I, I understand the border to be actually quite long. 2,000 <laughs> so, miles. Yes, 2,000 miles. We can't possibly patrol with guns 2,000 miles of, of land. That, that's really... It, it is impossible. And, and, and even thinking of, you know, the in my mind, the stupidity of a wall, I mean, it, it, it helps in certain places. Um, 
you know, there, you know, it, it helps if you if your interest is to stop the legal flow of, of immigrants into this country. And some people argue, you know, I would even say my mother, because even within the Latino community, there are some people who live on the border who actually think it's good to have some sort of wall because sometimes there are immigrants that come in that that well, do that that but, do crime. But, not, but not. But I would say right. the majority of them do do not. You, are you saying your mother would be supportive of a wall? Yes. Wow. Absolutely. That message about the variety within the population <laughs> just look, look. slammed into me. Right. Well, but it's it's true. It's true. And, and this is a, again the you know the Latino community is sixty forty Democrat and Republican. It's not ninety ten. And that's always been true, actually. And if you live on the border, I have to be honest, you know. I would say the vast majority of people who cross the border are crossing to work. They do not want to commit crimes. They are not interested in committing crimes. They have no rights. They're usually abused by people on this side because um, they don't speak Spanish. And they, you know, they're, they're, they're typically used and abused. But there are a, a few, there's, you know, that cross over and they want to take advantage of other people. Um, you know, in my neighborhood in Isleta, we've had both, um, you know, where... Um, once um, somebody, some some uh, buddy who just crossed, jumped into my mother's backyard, and attempted to break into the house, um, and other people in the neighborhood jumped in and dragged that person out, and it was an undocumented immigrant. You know, they were trying to break into the house, and they had just crossed the border. So I'm not going to give you some sort of stereotypical of all immigrants are good or all immigrants are bad, but I would say the vast majority of them are hardworking, decent people who want a, just an economic opportunity or they're escaping violence and that's that's what they want. But but to say that it doesn't this other element doesn't exist is also not true. Right, right. Do, would you say that the American dream is a driver and for, for many of the ones that you're saying that just want to cross and, and make a living, make a life in yeah. some way? It's still, you think, a real thing. Absolutely. It was the same dream my father had. I think my, my father and my mother, for example, are two very different people. And my father recently died. But my father left Mexico never wanting to leave Mexico. He loved Mexico. He left because when he graduated from his school, at his first job working as an agronomist in Mexico, he had to uh, buy a, a truck to his boss to get the job. This was in the 50s. And my father said, I don't want to live like this. You know, it was corruption. It was sort of low-level economic corruption. And my father said, I don't want to live like this. And so he left reluctantly to El Paso, which is really just crossing, you know, like a, a little canal where everyone still spoke Spanish. He, you could pretend you were in Mexico, but you weren't. Right. You were in Texas. And Juarez, where he grew up, was, was a... 20-minute drive across uh, the bridge. And my mother, on the other hand, as my father would, they would have these debates in front of me, is muy malinchista, which means she was a traitor to Mexico. <laughs> because my mother came across saying, as a woman, I don't want the Mexican machos ruling my life. I, I'm crossing willingly. I'm pro-American. Uh, I am rah-rah, you know, the stars and stripes. And my mother... Uh, was happy to cross and happy to leave, and Mexico was a forgotten past she didn't want to turn back to. And so you here you have two, two people who are Mexican immigrants 
have very different attitudes about leaving Mexico. And, and, and they, they would have these debates in front of me <laughs> in our living room and in our kitchen all the time. Wow. Uh, and that's one reason why my mother, for example, is, was, you know, put up a wall. Yeah, absolutely, a wall is good. You know, we, we worked hard. You know, we didn't take food stamps. We didn't take uh, welfare. You know, and these people coming across now, I'm paraphrasing my mother, you know, they're taking food stamps and, and, and welfare. You know, we didn't do it that way. So she, you know, she has her point. She has her point. And, and that's, that's what I'm saying. Any sleta, you just take it as a microcosm of Mexican immigrants. You had people who were lawyers from that neighborhood. People who became writers like me. People who, you know, became nurses and superintendents and teachers. And then you had people who died before they were 18 from drug abuse. People who, you know, were in, in jail. And that, that is the, the neighborhood. The neighborhood is all of that variety. And of course, you want to be encouraging the good immigrants, the immigrants that, that, that come here to work and come here and want their kids to be American and, and learn English, just like my parents did. But even within my own family, there's a, a rich variety of political views. It's not one or the other. Right. I love that as sort of the final word on that topic. I, I, yeah. I wanted to move on to, to I, I like to talk also a lot about the art of, mm -hmm. of the book writing and and I like to talk about your evolution as an, as a writer. We know that you liked to read as a child, but I don't know how when you had the time. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> tell us a little bit about it, your progression into writing as a career, and and what what drove you to it, what you felt compelled you to do it. Well, well, when when I was you know when I was finally at Yale and I had finally gotten my fill of Mexican history, and I started getting more into philosophy. What happened was that I started feeling isolated. I was on my way. I was in a PhD program to be a philosopher at Yale. And, but I couldn't, you know, how many people can you talk to that are experts in Aristotle, which is what I was writing my dissertation on. And, and so I started combining things. I, my favorite course where I TA'd at Yale was philosophy and literature which is combining people like Tolstoy, people like Dostoevsky, and, and even Nietzsche, and other, Camus is another one, who would combine storytelling with philosophy. So I, I started writing stories. The first one was the Abuelita, in which I would talk about where I grew up and my culture, but also throw in these philosophical questions. And, so, and then they started getting published. And people started saying, do you have a book? And then I put together The Last Tortilla, and then the last tortilla was really successful. But and tell so, us about the process, because you're still skipping, which I think, great. Yeah. I like that. I like the, it makes a lot of sense to me. And tell us a little bit about how did the writing come to you? Was it, was it a challenge for you? Did it just flow? Was it, did you feel like it was something maybe that was within you for so long that when you finally sat down to do it, mm -hmm. it, you, it felt effortless? Or what was that like? You know, I have a, a very particular question within that topic, because I was, take, take, I would hit I was struck by how natural and solid and easy the writing was. And I kept wondering I, how you looked when you, like, did that just flow or did you sit there and reshape and edit and torture each sentence and have draft number 29 and draft number 65, like I do, or like a lot of people do, you know? Well, I mean, to answer both of your questions, a, a lot of it came from my abuelita. 
because I loved hearing her oral stories. Uh, my grandmother, Doña Dolores Rivero, uh, my mother's mother, uh, was a great oral storyteller. I would, you know, go from Isleta to her uh, tenement in, in El Segundo Barrio and listen to these violent stories about her growing up during the Mexican Revolution. She had shot and killed two men who attempted to rape her. Uh, she was a teenager during the revolution, and she was this tough-as-nails older woman that would tell me stories about Pancho Villa uh, controlling the ranch uh, in Chihuahua and hanging up lawyers and bankers by the telegraph wire whenever he came into town. Um, you know, and for me, as I tell my, my, my kids, I said it was like kind of Call of Duty, but Mexican style. <laughs> um, and so this oral storytelling is what I used when I started writing stories like the Abuelita. I remembered how she would tell stories. So for me, it was almost, I would tell a story in my head and to myself before I actually wrote it down. And so that's how I started with the storytelling. And then I, I also had a lot of influence on writing from my, maternal, my paternal grandfather, who was a newspaper man in, in Juarez. And he was founder and editor of El Dia, uh, the first daily newspaper in Juarez. But, but, but for me, writing these stories was for me just natural story, oral storytelling being put to paper. At least the, the early ones. Did you know you were going to try and publish them at the time, or you weren't sure yet? Well, I, it, it, when I was a grad student at Yale, I was trying to publish them. I was trying to really explain the philosophical ideas I was getting in the graduate program to people like my grandparents, to people like my father and mother, to people who weren't philosophers but really did discuss issues like life and death on in the kitchen table and what's right and wrong in the situation, you know, they wouldn't do it in this highfalutin, you know, Yale works, you know, philosophical seminar way, but they were still discussing these same issues. And so for me, it was almost like translating my philosophy into stories. But it, I'm not hearing a struggle. I mean, what was the hardest lesson for you to learn? As a writer, mm -hmm. English. <laughs> I mean, for me, for me it was. For me it was. You know, uh, you know, and literary English. Because I mean, literary of course, English. of course, you know, you you know how to write a, a good paper. By the time you get out of Harvard and right. you get out of Yale, you know how to write an academic paper. But that's not storytelling. Right. That's right. not literary English. So for me, it was unlearning. Right. All the abstract language that I had learned, unfortunately, at, in the Ivy League, and getting back to a more naturalistic, plain-spoken, uh, direct language that I grew up with, but translated into literary English. Did you have people uh, critique your work, or what no. tool did you use to teach yourself? Myself. Autarkic. No, honestly, I mean, I, because I, I didn't know any better. I didn't even know what an MFA program was. So I, I, I started reading, you know, the, my favorite writers. When I started saying I, I want to be a writer, uh, I started reading people like Faulkner. And I, I liked Hemingway. I liked, the, and I liked Flannery O'Connor, for example. Um, I started reading uh, one of my, stylistically, one of the ones that I love is Joseph Conrad. Heart of Darkness, because he writes very simplistically. And by the way, Joseph Conrad, I think English was his fifth language. Mm. And he, you know, he, yeah, yes, he did not grow up speaking English. Uh, I think he was Polish. And so, but his English is beautiful. 
And so for, for me, that's the other thing about writing in English and, and getting myself to write a better literary English was to read voraciously of these short stories uh, that, I, that I loved. Um, and so, so anyway, so that, that, that was part of the way how I started well, teaching myself. Just as an extension of that, now you're a teacher. Um, what do you find is the lesson that students most need to teach? to get? Uh, they don't work hard enough. <laughs> they, they don't read enough. They do not read enough. They do not take apart their own work fast enough. And, and, the, and the last part eventually comes with time. But, uh, for example, when, when I... Uh, if you're not reading at one or two books a week, you're not even close to ever being a writer. And that's minimum. That's simply just jogging in place. Um, you know, when I was a judge for the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction, we read 493 books in nine months. That's about two books a day. You know, if you, if, if you, if you want to be a writer, the very first thing you have to do is you have to be an aggressive, voracious reader. Because that's how you learn how other people do it. That's how you learn to experiment. That's how you learn to copy and steal. <laughs> Honestly, like if, if somebody's using, you know, the third person or, in a, in a, or model exactly in, in a certain way, or you're using indirect monologue in another way, that's how you learn to read voraciously. Um, and, and then you have to actually put, you know, put the stories down. Even if it's a bad draft, you have to have something down for it to be a rewrite later. Right. Um, so we're going to start to wrap up. So one of the things I wanted to make sure we covered before we, we ended the episode was to talk about what you have coming up, whatever you can tell us. Sure. About what's next so, so I have a, a great new book of short stories coming uh, out in October of 2019, A Peculiar Kind of Immigrant Son, which are linked uh, short stories. I think there are 15 stories in that collection. And it's all about immigration and Mexican-American diaspora, you know, Mexican-Americans in New York and in other places that are not, uh, you know, Connecticut and considered uh, typical places, not the border necessarily. In fact, somewhat mirroring my life. Um, and it's coming out by Cinco Puntos Press, which is a great press from Texas um, that publishes writers I love. Excellent. So we used to have a reading, and now what we do is we just ask a few, whatever few questions we'd like to make things a little bit more interesting. So I'll start, and then Diane, you go. Okay. Um, so I'm going to ask you if you could have a meeting, dinner, whatever you like, tea, coffee, with any writer, who would it be? Dead or alive? Any, anyone you would like, yeah. I would love to have a meeting or coffee with Flannery O'Connor. What would you talk about? What do you think he would say to them as a warm-up saying? I was going to bet on Gabriel. Oh, wow. You just Marquez? jumped heritage there. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Uh, I'm, on, I'm on the fence about him. But yeah. <laughs> I would ask her to tell me about the South, about, uh, you know, her, her experiences in the South and, and just sort of have, not necessarily talk about writing, but I would love to see how she sees the South herself. Um, because I've always loved her uh, in, in her short stories. I think her precision in her language is incredible. And, and I think it's very naturalistic, something Diane mentioned about my writing. And I, I love that about Flannery O'Connor. Um, 
It's somebody I have always admired as okay. a writer. All right. Well, this is the, the wrap-up and the rapid-fire short question, so I'm just going to ask you, who do you follow on Twitter? Who do I follow on Twitter? I don't. I'm trying to think. Do I do I follow anyone purposely on Twitter? Um, you know, I followed some other writers I like. Uh, I follow Ben Signs, for example, from El Paso, uh, and I follow. Um, I'm trying to think. Why Twitter? I'm just curious. I mean, Pen Parentis. Why not all the platforms? Why Twitter? I don't know. Them? You can answer for all the platforms. That yeah. maybe that's a better question. <laughs> that's a good one, Dave. Better like, question. Twitter. I mean, I I, I I don't follow too many people, yeah. but I follow writers. I follow uh, Pen, the you know oh, the, right. the 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 organization Pen America. Pen America. Yeah. Right. And I follow, you know, a few writers I like, some poets I like. Yeah, I think I should amend that question to say what are the kind of repeat publications that you keep an eye on. And, uh, you know, I tend to go to the publications rather than to their Twitter page, personally. You know, mm -hmm. but uh, whether it's something like the New right. Yorker or Echotone or Three Penny Review, I go to their, 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 their online presence, you know, and just read is there anything else that we haven't asked you that you want to get? I, I want him to just share where where readers and listeners can find your books and more about you. Well, I have a great website, uh, SergioTroncoso.com. And uh, I also run another uh, website called LiteraryLatino.com, uh, Lat uh, which is really just a list of books that I like. Oh, yeah. oh and let's spell your name out for, for the audience. So Sergio is S-E-R-G-I-O. Last name is T as in Tom, R-A-N. T-R-O-N. T-R-O-N, Troncoso, excuse me, T-R-O-N-C-O-S-O. -O. Okay, so, dot com, correct? Yep. Okay, so we're good. And... It's October 2019, we have another book coming. We're very excited. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you to both of you, Diane and Marina, for inviting me on the show. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review. It'll help us keep bringing you great content. For show notes, upcoming events, and to participate in the Brooklyn Writers Project community, head on over to our website at www.brooklynwritersproject.com. Questions or comments? Send them to contact at lifelinespodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. Lifelines, the books podcast has been brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. Music for this podcast has been provided by Anthony Nuda of Noble Sense Productions.